Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Porch Podcast. I'm Gareth Higgins, and we're here to have a conversation about the stories that we tell and how they shape our lives. You know, we're all storytellers. It's the thing that uh, sets us apart from other species, although I'm never quite sure when I look at my dog. I think she might be a storyteller, too. But I think we can agree that one of the things that sets humans apart is the ability to consciously reflect on our beliefs and uh, the way we make meaning. And the problem is most of us for most of our lives don't actually do a lot of that reflection. We haven't been taught how to. And therefore, we might be living a story that's actually doing us some harm. Uh, wouldn't it be better if we had a story that was helping us, especially if it was more true? So we're here to talk about that kind of stuff. And uh, each time we meet, we'll share some thoughts uh, about storytelling and how they shape our lives. We'll have a conversation with someone who's doing a lot of thinking about that kind of stuff. And we'll tell you about some ways that you can connect further with what we call uh, the new story. And the new story isn't really chronologically new. Uh, as our friend Charles Eisenstein says, it's new for the dominant culture. There's a lot of ancient wisdom that's resurfacing. But there are new ways of bringing that story to life. And the work we do around here is rooted in a, in a pretty simple idea. And, and it's the experience that creativity, community and the common good are better than sterility, separation and selfishness. I mean, that's obvious. You know, that's kind of like saying that good is better than bad. But here's the thing. Most of the time, we don't consciously give ourselves over to creativity, to community and the common good. And it may just be because uh, it hasn't been modeled for us, maybe because we feel that our lives wouldn't allow the space for that to happen. Uh, and it may be because we just don't feel we know where to start. And um, I think it, it there, there may be easier starting points than some of us think. And so let's have a conversation about that. We're all familiar with Gandhi's really simple but brilliant invitation to be the change that you wish to see in the world. I mean, that's pretty obvious too. But that's more than a nice idea. I think it's a truth about our reality. Many of the rules we live by are nothing more than stories. And the world doesn't have to wait for the rules to change before it does. Instead, we can bend the rules, especially the unjust rules, and experiment with a new story before we're even sure where it might lead. Now, I'm absolutely not an expert in these matters. In fact, I think I talk about them so much precisely because I notice how easy it is for me to slip into oppositional energy, negative self-talk, criticizing others, or complaining more about what's wrong with the world than seeking to live an alternative. We all need support on the journey. So when I imagine what it means to say, as our friend Father Richard Rohr says, that the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. I mean, that just means it's better to try and imagine what you're going to build than just what you're going to destroy. Uh, there are three practical steps I've discovered on the journey that I want to share. You might want to try one of these steps each day for three days. You know, step one, step two, step three, and after three days, Try one again, see what happens and let us know. The first step, it's simple. Everyone has a part to play in the new story, no matter who you are. Um, 
And in fact, sometimes I think if we think we're big and important people, we fail to see the forest for the trees. So I want to suggest this to you, no matter who you are, when you meet someone you don't know in the next week, perhaps at the checkout in the grocery store or on the bus or in a parking lot or at the gym, try to imagine that other person being part of the new story of creativity, community and the common good. If you get the chance to say hello, Talk to them while imagining that although you may never see each other again, you're already part of an immeasurably huge us, not them. The second step, I think we're invited to step beyond fear and separation into enacting hope and connection. Now, that doesn't mean we deny our fear. A lot of us are afraid. A lot of us do feel disconnected. A lot of us are really anxious. Let's face that, but consider stepping away from fast-moving media sources, maybe even just for one day each week, especially TV news and online sources that are constantly updated. Instead, consider a project to care for or renew local community and ecosystems. What does your street need? Have you met your neighbors yet? Is there a community food kitchen that could use you as a volunteer or a neighborhood cleanup? What matters is to be physically present with other folk doing good in the world. And the third step, nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. So let's live the world we want to see today. All the great wisdom traditions invite us not to worry about tomorrow, for today has enough problems of its own. Better than that, they also suggest that loving ourselves is as important as loving our neighbors, and you can't do one without the other. So, consider the following practice. If you want to learn to move beyond fear, to love yourself more and love your neighbor, every time something fearful comes to mind, name out loud five things for which you can be grateful and see what happens. If this all seems a bit fluffy or unrealistic or won't really cut it in this world, I hear you. Sometimes I ask the same questions myself. But on the whole, I see it differently, at least on my better days. I think that taking action for a better world most effectively is only possible if each of us participates, finds our groove where the world's needs intersect with our enthusiasms and gifts. Just opposing what is wrong is no way to build something and without practicing gratitude for what is already beautiful, we will burn out on despair for what is broken. And if you need a harder edge than that, let's return to Gandhi, who refused to kill even with words and told many of his followers that they should not expect to be alive at the end of their nonviolent struggle. Not particularly fluffy, you might agree. Don't get me wrong, this wasn't a death wish, but a simple statement of reality. Vision for transformation toward the common good always meets opposition. And sometimes that opposition manifests in violence. But right now, there's actually substantial momentum toward reducing violence in the world 
And I think the point Gandhi was making is that we should not consider our lives to be our most important individual possessions or that losing them would be the worst thing that could happen to us. What would be worse would be to live a life of no meaning, no community, no contribution to the evolution of the common good. There have always been people so confused about life that they consider it a win to cause others to suffer. But despite some really loud voices championing that idea, I think that spirit appears to be waning. I think it's being replaced by the expanding circle of sympathy. And the threat even of the climate crisis, the greatest threat we face today, that threat is actually galvanizing millions of people to care about not only each other's good, but that of the planet and of people who haven't even been born yet. So, yeah, there is a lot of pain and there is a lot of trouble around at the moment. If you want to move through it, if you want to face it, and if you want to do something about it, and I say this to me as much as to anybody, I still want to advocate for the simple sounding but world-changing ideas of everyone finding their part and playing it with no one excluded from the common good, living the truth that we respond best to the bad by embodying the better and practicing gratitude as a way of life. I look forward to exploring these things together in this podcast. We're grateful around here at the Porch and the New Story Festival to have some beautiful friends doing amazing things. And uh, one of the most wonderful people I've ever encountered is Bishop Yvette Flunder, who works uh, out of uh, the Bay Area, involved in caring for people and for the planet with a devotion to love and service uh, that is nothing short of inspirational. Uh, Yvette will be joining us for the New Story Retreat at the end of March. And uh, a couple of days ago, I had the opportunity to have a conversation with her about uh, what drives her, uh, what nourishes her, and um, what she might say to us as we seek to live into a new story. And that interview is coming right up. So I'm here with Bishop Yvette Flunder, who has been in my life for nearly 10 years now. And we met at a, at a festival. And one of the reasons I love doing festivals is I get to meet people and orbit each other, maybe just for a day or two, um, sometimes for a long time. And uh, in your case, that uh, your voice has been in my head since 2012, I think, 2012, when I heard you give a talk entitled Go Get Your God Back. <laughs> and uh, we'll maybe explore what that was about in a few minutes. But uh, first of all, tell us uh, where you live, what you do, and what is a bishop? Ah, well, I am uh, actually a native of San Francisco, and I um, live now in Oakland, California, which is where my church and the, the actual headquarters for the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries and the Flunder Foundation, which is our 501c3, through which we do work throughout the United States, uh, justice work and, uh, and uh, all sorts of things that we can talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, 
throughout the United States and in Asia and Africa. So we're headquartered here in Oakland, but I'm a native of San Francisco. My family is of a a diaspora of African-Americans that left just before World War II and came out to San Francisco in the 40s, early 40s. So that's where I'm uh, born and raised. As, as my friends from the Midwest and East Coast say, that's what's wrong with me. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a native Californian. <laughs> so is there a difference between a native Californian bishop and a bishop from somewhere else? Like what, what does bishop mean? Okay. Um, as, as I am the third generation of bishops in my family. Wow. My grandfather, um, my uncle, uh, two of my uncles, and then me. And interesting that I'm, I'm a woman, but uh, that's another conversation later on. I think that uh, what it means, episkopos, I love the Greek word, uh, basically uh, would be best uh, translated to see keenly. Um, to, to see have an keenly. To see keenly, to have an opportunity and a privilege and an obligation to oversee. Mm to be able to uh, uh, look over sort of panoramically over the church and the needs of the church. And more specifically for me, I see it as a role to pastor pastors Mm. um, and to share with people who are called to the role of pastoral leadership and leadership within the church. So, maybe for folk who didn't grow up in the church or have a different kind of experience within their own uh, spiritual communities. I think a lot of people think a pastor's job is to stand uh, on a platform on a Sunday morning and say things for between 20 minutes and mm-hmm. 80 minutes, depend, mm-hmm. depending on the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not that they don't do anything else with their time, but that that's primarily what a pastor does uh, in a lot of people's minds. What, what, does, uh, what does a pastoral ministry mean for you? What does it mean to be a pastor? Well, I think it's important for me to preface this by saying that I am definitively suited to the role. Definitively suited. <laughs> and I say that because I believe that what to what it means to be a pastor is to uh, get actively among people, among uh, congregations, whether it is my local congregation or the congregation of congregations that is the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries. Uh, I enjoy um, being in the presence and in the company of people. I enjoy doing my part. I'm a hardworking person. Mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to outwork me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so um, I'm a hardworking person. I think it's a matter of, of community mm-hmm. and making communal decisions and having um, communal joy and then also grieving together mm-hmm. um, and sharing with one another. And so that the weakest among us in the many ways that people are often weak, mm-hmm that the strong can bear the infirmity of the weak. Mm. You know, I, I think it's about safety. It's mm. about uh, accountability. Mm. And I think that the greatest joy that I have as a pastor is to be among people who have the grace gifts to know how to do what I call lead up. Mm. Essentially, there are some things about myself that I cannot see. I do not know. And some things that I just don't want to accept at times that are part of, of 
what, what is problematic about me. And there are people who are strong enough that will share with me the necessary grown folks information I need to have mm. to be my best and highest self. Mm. Sometimes their roles would be um, in, in some ways subordinate in some people's view. But I think one of the most powerful things that people can do is, is to have the grace to help a leader lead. Uh, Some of them have so much grace that I don't know that I could do what they do. Mm. I think that they're just that wonderful mm. and they keep me safe. They, they watch my back. They, they, they check me, you know, when I'm a mm. little sideways, you know, <laughs> if I'm going to use superlatives, you know, some days I have days where <laughs> only a superlative will, <laughs> will, will, will really, you know, describe how I'm feeling deeply. Yeah. Those are the people who know that side of me, you yeah. know, yeah. and I'm very grateful um, for what, for what community brings to me and also for my role in community. Yeah. I might say just one other thing here to, yeah. to you that I, I cannot do everything. There are some things that I'm just not called to do. I'm very clear about what my call is. Mm. Um, and Shirley and I had an experience where we, um, early on, with some degree of naivete, brought all of the children home to spend the weekend at our house. And uh -huh. they brought them on a, on a Friday after school, and they spent the night and stayed until Saturday. So the parents were supposed to pick them up in the late afternoon. <laughs> I started calling the parents about 6 in the morning. <laughs> You discovered you know, what, what you were not called to. That's it. You all got to come get your kids. <laughs> when you come, take some other people's kids with you and take them home. Because <laughs> I, I truly adore children. But, you know, 20 of them or so at a time, at mm. one time, was biting off a little bit more than I could chew. But I know people that can do that. And that's do their that. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's their call. And so I how respect it. Yeah. So... Mm -hmm. Um, what did you, what does go get your God back mean? Well, um, I'm one of those people who know a, a lot about exile, mm. um, on several levels, uh, as a person of African descent, as a woman clergy person, as a same gender loving person, um, who is, uh, open and honest about my 35 year relationship with mm. Shirley and what, um, that means to me in terms of family and the children that we raised together and the grandchildren that we now impact together. But I, I know what it is to be exiled from the church of my youth and my family's church, which of course meant to be to some degree exiled from my family mm. and to be exiled also meant to be anathema, you know, that word mm. um, separated from God um, to, to be separated from the church. It, when, when you're in a, uh, sort of a uh, Pentecostal environment that is your whole life. It yeah. is your recreation. Yeah. It's, it's the folks you eat with. It's the people that you travel with. Mm -hmm. uh, the people that intermarry, if you understand mm -hmm. what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly to be exiled because I am a woman clergy, because I'm saying gender loving, mm -hmm. was very um, painful to me. And I thought for a period of time that when I lost them, I lost God mm. because I only knew how to find God in the ways that I was raised, mm -hmm. which I, to this day, 
have great joy in remembering mm-hmm. finding spirit among a, a bunch of, of old, some elderly African-American praying women, mm-hmm. some of which were functionally illiterate, mm-hmm. but, um, but knew spirit. They knew God, you know, and I thank God for them every day. But my truth is I felt exiled and lost. And it dawned on me one day. Um, I lost a community. I did not, however, lose the things about that practice that were life to me. And what I needed to do was take the initiative and go get my God back. Because it wasn't that God left me. It was that I left God. Because I thought that's what I had to do. And I remember the the moment that it dawned on me that I'm going (laughs) to, I have to go, I have to take the initiative and go and get my God back, open up and receive again the power of spirit in my life. Even if my theology was fastly evolving, metamorphosizing right before my eyes, it did not take away from me the presence and power and purpose of God in my life. And that shifted everything. I didn't know there was any God out there in that wilderness, you know, <laughs> away from the church. And I found out about omnipresence, that God really is everywhere at the same time, across countries, across languages, across practices, across, just across, across, across. And thanks be to God. For, for that revelation. What was, when, when I hear you say, I knew I needed to take the initiative, mm-hmm. what were some of the concrete steps that you took? If someone's, well, if someone's listening to this and they're feeling like, I know what it's like to be exiled. Yes. And, and I, and I know that in that exile process, I received a gift and that I didn't have to be in that system that was oppressing me anymore. But yeah, on the other side of that, maybe once you've had some time away, and I think a lot of us need some time away to kind of regroup and just kind of be able to sort out the, the wheat from the chaff and someone's listening and thinking, okay, what does it mean to take the initiative? What's a step that I could take? Mm-hmm. Well, I can say to you what, my process was, and hopefully that will inform someone else's um, journey and or affirm someone else's journey. Um, I had to go to my inner life. I had to start enjoying and practicing the presence of God by myself. Hmm. Because I was very accustomed to what that meant in a group with a group of people. And, and I'm not in any way belittling, um, diminishing the power of community and the circle dance, you know, when we're all together in one place. But what I had to do is I had to go inward and I had to spend some of that uh, private time, you know, in the shower kind of stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. driving along in my car and having conversations with my understanding of the divine and talking to God and and, and listening and waiting for the way that God speaks, God speaks, you know, through children, through billboards, through, <laughs> you know, just all kind of just ways, bumper stickers, you know, that it, I, I never know where the message was going to come. But I found myself um, starting to 
enjoy alone time. And um, alone as it related to not having to have the stimuli of other people uh, going inward and, and seeking and practicing the presence of God, communicating and listening and more listening than talking. And the more that I did that, the more I realized that God didn't go anywhere. I, I needed to reinforce that relationship internally before I could go out into the world and deal with sometimes being the only odd person in a room <laughs> in terms of how people perceive odd mm. and, and not being intimidated by that mm-hmm. and being in a group of people when they all turn their eyes, you know, because 35 years ago when Shirley and I first got together, it was really a quite something, mm. you know, mm-hmm. um, and having to stand. I also had to resolve inside myself that it was God that called me and God knew who I was when God called me. Mm. It was no mystery to God. Mm-hmm. You understand? Mm-hmm. And this is the package that God called. Mm. I am female and I am mm. saying gender loving sure. and I am African of African descent. Yeah. And God knew that. God, God knew what God was doing. Yeah. God's very smart. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's people, people need to do the catching up. Right. Sometimes, sometimes God got jokes, too, as we say. <laughs> and I just thought of it. I said, well, you know, God, God, this is who God chose for me to be. Mm-hmm. I was born into the earth realm with these tools and these realities. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I have to, my task then is to figure out how first to reconcile with my being who I am and to reconcile with the God that made me. Mm-hmm. And how do those things connect with ministry? And how do those things connect with my role to share the divine, to share the creator, to share God in the lives of many other people who have been exiled and feel that in being exiled from family and from friends and from church or from community somehow means that you're exiled from God. But actually, it made me draw closer. I don't have cultural faith like I once had. Mm. doesn't mean I don't like to clap on the two and the four and you know what I mean? And, and I like mm-hmm. to play a tambourine and I still dance <laughs> in worship. I'm a Pentecostal mm. who will dance in worship. It doesn't mean that I didn't keep those cultural things, mm. but it's much deeper than my culture. I'm, I'm comfortable in an Episcopalian service. I'm an Episcopal service. I'm comfortable in a Catholic service. I'm, I'm comfortable with my Native American brothers and sisters and spirit dancing. You know, I'm comfortable when the, with the whirling dervishes, you know, when they, because I know God. If I don't know anything else, brother, I know that I know God. Mm. And I know that God knows me. Mm. That's the blessing. Mm. Lovely. So we ask these uh, four questions of everyone and uh, uh, the the reason we ask them is that it helps me and I think it helps lots of us to know that other people have the same journey. Every journey is different, but there are parts in which they intersect and resonate in parallel all the time. And sometimes when we can hear from someone we respect that they maybe have some of the same burdens or some of the same joys. We feel less alone in the world. So let's get into these four questions. And um, we'll just take, take them 
briefly. The first one, Yvette, is what's something in your life at the moment that's really life-giving to you? Something that's sparking joy or peace, happiness, contentment, gratitude? I have, I have grandsons, one that's 14 and one that's 10. And uh, Shirley and I raised girls, so each of the girls have given us a boy. And I have to say that I just get incredible contentment being a grandmother. Mm -hmm. it's, just a, it's just juicy to me. <laughs> I just absolutely love it. Uh, I mean, these boys, even when they're wrong, they're right, as far as I'm concerned. You know, <laughs> I just absolutely love them. Mm. And um, being able to watch them, their formation uh, as... Uh, young men um, and young people in this time in which we live and their theology, you know, coming uh, to fruition without the the negativity yeah. that I remember as, as a child coming along. Yeah. So I have great joy being with them. And again, I have great joy having one hand, um, as I say often, on the ground and then another at a much higher level in terms of viewing the church or viewing, viewing religion panoramically, a higher level. But I really still make sure in my life that I have a hand on the ground. So when we feed people here and provide showers and allow people to wash their clothes in this epidemic of uh, um, housing insecurity in California, um, I want to be a part of that. Mm. I want to, you know, the, I can't do it all the time, but when I'm available to do it, I, I touch people, I want to talk to people, I want to hear their stories. I want to feel it. I want to smell it. Mm. I want to uh, to touch it mm. so that I never get to thinking that all of my life is to be spent at making high level decisions and being gotcha. involved with, you understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's that I can always stay anchored and rooted. Mm -hmm. So my grandchildren have a lot to do with that. When I mm -hmm. cross the threshold of my house and my children are here, my grandchildren are here, I stop being all of that, you know, mm -hmm. and then everybody, you know, wants to know, you know, what we're we going to eat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what, are, what are your, what do your grandkids call you? Grandma. Grandma. Yeah, I'm grandma. All right. Second question. Mm -hmm. The other side. What's something that's not life-giving? or challenging at the moment? I am um, disheartened by the way in which, uh, particularly Christianity um, in the United States and other parts of the world um, is in bed right now in many ways, particularly conservative, even particularly conservative evangelical Christianity, but not just evangelical. Conservative Christianity is in bed once again with a despot and once again with being uh, determined to spread and spew uh, colonialist Christianity mm -hmm. everywhere. Once again, it's happening in Asia and the continent of Africa, but it's happening all over the United States. I'm just I'm frustrated with the fragility of uh, European Americans and the intent to preserve uh, power at any expense. 
uh, whether it's at the borders, uh, in the inner cities, um, particularly among the, the fragility of uh, patriarchy. You know, these are the things that disturb me because children die in atmospheres like that and, and people languish. The earth is suffering uh, because of all of these realities. Saddens me most, brother, because it is done in the name of, of God, <laughs> which is uh, it's just really bad press for God. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. This is not the God that I know. Mm. God, does, God is not petty yeah. and punitive. That is not the God that I know and is not the God that I serve. And that mm. probably brings me more anguish because young people, young adults in particular, don't want to have anything to do with that God. Mm. And they consequently often don't want to have anything to do with any God because of the of the bad press that comes mm. from that God. The third question is probably related to this. Mm -hmm. How is your sense of purpose and mission showing up in your life at the moment? Well, purpose for me, first of all, is everything. I think that that is what gives us life and juice. <clears throat> to discover and to live in and to embrace our purpose. I'm sort of reminded of the story of the potter's wheel. You know, when the hand, the potter was in the hands of the, the potter, the pottery, the, the clay was in the hands of the potter. And it kept trying to be something that it wasn't, <laughs> to throw it down and start over. You know, mm -hmm. I think that finding purpose um, is paramount. And I am I am grateful to really be clear uh, in terms of what I believe mine is. I believe that I am called to embody justice. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that I am called not just to recite the word, but to mm -hmm. be the word, not just to recite from the book or any holy writ, but to actually embody holy writ, mm -hmm. much like what Jesus did when he came back to his home synagogue. Mm -hmm. and preach the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Mm -hmm. And the spirit has empowered me to preach good tidings to the poor. Mm. I believe that it is not about um, a verse and line. It is about embodying. It's like the writer of the Hebrews. It is when, when our understandings of God are not written on tablets, but are written on our hearts. Mm. So I believe that my purpose is to seek and know what is God saying and doing in the earth realm right now? And then to do the work, not of trying to get people to heaven, but to do the work of bringing heaven to earth. I believe in thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come, thy will be done mm. on earth mm. as it is in heaven. Mm. <laughs> we won't need it in heaven. <laughs> we mm -hmm. need it mm -hmm. on earth. This is where... We need to establish the realm of God. And I believe that part of my role, that the principal part of my role, is to help to bring the realm of God into the earth. Mm. Yes. And the last question, where do you need help? Oh, I'll tell you what my, one of my doctors told me once. said, well, you got to do two things, Yvette. He's talking about my health. He said, um, you have to lose weight and you have to reduce your stress. <laughs> mm -hmm. I said, well, baby, this is what I was talking to the doctor. 
<laughs> I said one out of two ain't bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I, I said I can lose weight. I can I can get that part, but that one that reducing my stress. You know, you several things that you're going to have to do to change a lot of things if you want to do that. This is me talking to him, but but in truth, you know, I think that um, where I really do need some help is finding that line between uh, self-care and Mm, mm. self-sacrifice because sometimes I do cross the line, you know, um, because I, I, there's a lot to do. Mm -hmm. And consequently it's not easy for me to shut down and do what it is that needs Mm -hmm. to be done for Mm self-care. I don't suffer from an, from an absence of self-love, but I do struggle at times with making that a priority. Mm-hmm. And I'm working on it. Surely helps me a lot. Mm-hmm. And the folks that lead up that I told you about, they literally demand from mm-hmm. time to time that I do certain things, but mm-hmm. I could do better with my own self-care and with rest and times of reflection and that kind of thing. All right. Yeah. I want to thank you for being so open uh, with us. Mm-hmm. Um, I deeply appreciate uh even in the brief times that we've met, it's a measure of who you are and how you do embody this calling that it has spoken so deeply to me. Uh, The idea of returning from exile, not needing to go back into the same system, but to tap into the legitimate source of what was good about what we left behind without harming ourselves by taking the whole package. I think that's an immense gift and uh, the courage uh, and joy with which you live your life is an inspiration to me. Thank so thank you. you. I love you. Love you too. <laughs> love you too. It was a great conversation with Yvette Flunder. What a wonderful person. And as I've already said, you can meet Yvette in person if you want to join us for the New Story Retreat at the end of March. And you can be part of these conversations uh, online through the Facebook page for the New Story Festival uh, and at theporchmagazine.com. You can learn more at newstoryfestival.com about our new story events and also at moviesandmeaning.com for the event coming up sooner in February. I hope you've enjoyed these uh, words today. Drop us a line. Let us know the kind of thing you'd like to hear in this in this podcast. We're not uh, doing a podcast just to advertise an event. We're uh, very happy to meet you all in person and to be having those gatherings together because there's nothing like a festival. And whether you come to the festival or not, whether you can make it to where we are, uh, we want to nurture what we call a slow conversation about beautiful and difficult things. Asking ourselves, what's the story we're telling? Is it true? And is it helpful? And if it's not true and it's not helpful, let's see if we can find a truer version and a more helpful one. We can't do that without each other. Uh, I'm grateful to be in conversation with you. Please do uh, keep in touch and we'll see you next time.